0: In these uh, weeks leading up to Christmas, we have been exploring a question, and the question has been, why the Incarnation? Why the Incarnation? What, what, why did Christmas happen? Why, why did God take the unthinkable step of becoming a human being? What was achieved by this? And, and we've been looking at the same passage every week, and it's not necessarily a Christmas passage, but it speaks to this question and so let's go back to that passage one more time today. It's in Luke chapter 19. And by the time December is over, you should be really familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. You might have been familiar with it already. But here is what it says. In uh, Luke chapter 19, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem very soon. He's about a week away from his death, and he's making his final approach to the, the city there. And it says that as he entered Jericho, Luke, 19, 1, Luke 19:1 to 10. Also, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the verse that we've been landing on every week. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We have looked at the first two verbs in this sentence over the last couple of weeks. And today we're going to look at the third one save. Save. The the Son of Man came to save. The lost. Notice how in verse 9, Jesus declares that Zacchaeus has been saved. He says, Today, salvation has come to this house. What, what is Jesus talking about here? and What does it have to do with Christmas and the incarnation? Well, let's do what we did last week. I want to go back again with you to the beginning of the Bible to kind of set things in place. So go back to Genesis 3 with me one more time. Genesis chapter 3, way back at the beginning of the Bible. We saw last week how Adam and Eve sinned against God, and then they they hid from Him in shame, but then God went looking for them and calling out for them, and we talked about how God started the process of seeking lost people, which is still going on today. Uh, Today we're going to start where we left off. We'll start in verse 9 and see what happened after that. It says, verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This, of course, is the famous account of how Adam throws his wife under the bus And then she responds by shifting the blame onto the serpent who deceived her. And we know that as God addresses the serpent here, he is actually addressing the evil being who is speaking through the serpent, who is Satan himself. And if you think about it, Satan has just won a great victory, right? I mean, this is his moment. Satan has to see just what has just happened to Adam and Eve, probably his greatest accomplishment to date in thwarting the plans of God. I mean, these human beings had been invested with so much just unparalleled blessing and authority. They had been made specially in God's image. They had intimate fellowship with God. It was clear that God had great plans for Adam and Eve and the people that would come from them. So what better way to attack God Than to attack these creatures that seem so precious to him, and maybe in the best possible scenario, Satan can even get them to turn against him. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, that's exactly what he succeeded in doing. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they immediately found themselves on the wrong side of a great divide because they were now on the wrong side of God's holiness, they were now corrupt. They were compromised. They were, because of that, separated from God, and they were destined to perish. God said, In the day you eat of that, you shall surely die. And of course, they didn't die physically that day, but their death became absolutely certain. They became perishable, like the fruit that you get at Christmas time sometimes. So think of that orange that rolls back in the back of your refrigerator and you never see it. That kind of perish. They were spoiled. They were doomed to die. They were now on the same side as the devil, actually. In fact, in a very real sense, they were now the devil's captives. And not only that, but every human being born in the future would be born to the same fate, born into captivity, born slaves to sin, slaves to selfishness, to weakness, to fear, and to death. And I think we all experienced that. I don't have to tell you all about it. And Satan here really thought he had God backed into a corner. If you look at it from his perspective, he's thinking, well, now that I've done this, now that the, now these, these, these wonderful creatures that God has just created have just blown it, they've sinned, what are God's choices? He's really got two choices. He could let them off the hook. He could just kind of overlook it and blow it off and, and say, oh, that's all right, don't worry about it. But if he did that, God would then be violating his own sense of justice. He'd be violating his own holiness. On the other hand, God could be just and holy and just wipe them out. Just put an end to it right there. No more human beings. That seems to be his other choice. And Satan figures, well, God is a God of love. If he he lets these creatures off the hook and he violates his sense of justice like that, then what what ground does he have to hold me accountable for my rebellion? Maybe Satan thinks this is the way he he can put a wedge there. Get God to violate his own character, destroy the moral fabric of the universe. It seems that God is over a barrel here. But let's read verse 15 again. It's kind of obscure, but the rest of the Bible talks about how it works out. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's not just talking to a snake. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is saying three things here. Number one, Satan, I'm still going to judge you and crush you and defeat you your rebellion number two i'm not giving up on the humans number three as a matter of fact the way i'm going to crush you is through them they're going to do it for me as a matter of fact one particular human being is going to crush you God's final victory over Satan, which will include the deliverance and the cleansing of humanity, is going to come through the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman, thereby, in a way, giving Eve revenge for what Satan did to her. But this also requires humanity's Savior to be, of all things, a human being, a real human being. But then here's the question, how is humanity going to be saved by a human? Who could ever qualify? How can this prison of death and sin be unlocked from the inside by one of us? How could it ever happen? It seems impossible. Well, the answer to this impossible problem is, of course, the incarnation. God becoming man. God becoming man, not just disguising himself as a man, not just impersonating a man, but actually taking humanity, real and full humanity, upon himself. Now, how God did this and why God would go this far, that's the great mystery of Christmas we were singing about, and we'll never completely figure it out. But with that as the backdrop and with that as the understanding that we have in the back of our minds, let's now go back to Zacchaeus in chapter 19 of Luke and think about him. Zacchaeus is described by Luke here as a chief tax collector, a chief tax collector. Now, if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that the tax collector... Back then, is the lowest form of life to the people living in that time. In Rome-occupied Israel, the tax collector was the lowest of the low. The word "tax collector" was basically a synonym for sinner," or maybe some worse words. This is why Jesus, when, when he told a parable, he used a tax collector as the opposite of the supposedly righteous Pharisee in that famous story. It's why Jesus once said this if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the tax collectors do that. Jesus wasn't disparaging tax collectors there. He was just using the common parlance of the day. Everybody knew tax collectors were the worst sinners there were. Everybody could relate to that. But there were actually two levels of tax collector. There were the regular tax collectors, these were like Jews, like the disciple Matthew, who were employed by the Romans to basically man the toll booths and the tax stations and collect the poll tax and the market tax and the the travel taxes and the customs on the imports and the exports. There were a lot of taxes and these kind of foot soldier tax collectors were the ones who were in charge of making sure all those came in. But then there were the chief tax collectors, the publicani. These were the ruthless businessmen who had actually bid on the contract to collect the taxes for a certain municipality. So what would happen is these guys would promise Rome a certain amount of money, they'd bid it up, who could get the most, they'd promise Rome a certain amount of money, which they were then on the hook to come up with, and so they had to extort these funds from the population using this army of regular tax collectors, and if the chief tax collector went over and above with his income, he got to keep the profits. Perfect marriage of government and capitalism. And this person, this, this, this chief tax collector, was often a Roman. But in this case, Zacchaeus is doing it as a Jew. He's profiting off his own people. And Luke tells us he had gotten extremely rich doing this, so how do you think he built up all this money? Oh, and to top it all off, since Judea was a Roman province, the money Zacchaeus was in charge of collecting wasn't exactly going to build local roads and bridges either or to improve the lives of the citizens. No, it was going directly to the emperor in Rome. You can see why Zacchaeus was likely the most hated man in the entire town of Jericho, probably for a good reason. But as we mentioned last week, something has lately been going on in Zacchaeus' heart. He probably doesn't know it yet, but God has been seeking him. God is coming after him. Perhaps this wholesale rejection by his fellow Jews is starting to get under his skin a little bit. Perhaps he's starting to reflect about how badly he's been taking advantage of the poor, maybe some convictions coming into his heart. Perhaps all this money that he thought would make him happy is not only failing to satisfy him, but like it says in the book of James, maybe it's starting to kind of burn a hole in his heart, and he's starting to sense the, the corruption eating into his soul. Maybe he can sort of smell the smoke of judgment coming his way or at least he's starting to realize that he's been living a very empty and selfish life to this point. But what can he do? It's all he knows. He's a prisoner. Yeah, he's a really rich guy, but he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner to the demands of his Roman overlords. He's a prisoner to his own isolation. And he brought all this upon himself. Satan has been holding Zacchaeus in captivity to his own greed for many years. How could he ever break free of this? Well, he's heard something about this miracle-working teacher, this Jesus of Nazareth person, and we don't know how much he's heard or what he's heard, but it's enough to make him very curious, curious enough to, to run ahead of the crowd and climb a sycamore tree just to get a glimpse of this man who's going to be coming by. And when he does, as is so often the case with Jesus, something unexpected happens. Really unexpected. We mentioned it briefly last week, but I want to dwell on this a little bit more today. The first word that Zacchaeus hears from the mouth of Jesus is his name. His name. This is surprising enough, and that all the people in the crowd, including Zacchaeus himself, are probably wondering, "How does Jesus know this guy's name?" He just called him by name. That's a surprise. But it's also surprising to us because if if you read the New Testament, aside from his disciples. And aside from a few of his closest companions, the gospels almost never record Jesus calling someone by name like this, especially in public. This is very unusual. But it's also surprising for one more reason, and that has to do with Zacchaeus' name itself. If, if you had to guess what the name Zacchaeus means, what would you guess? Short person? Yeah. You know Dirtball. No, It means pure and innocent one, which is kind of ironic, right? I mean, here's the most impure, disgusting character you could think of, the king of corruption, okay? Today, this would be like a a drug kingpin or a mafia boss, and his name is pure and innocent one. No doubt this was a big joke to everyone in Jericho. Oh, here comes the pure and innocent one, Probably a knife in the heart of Zacchaeus, too, because his name had been mocking him his whole life. But when Jesus says it, somehow it sounds different, doesn't it? Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, astonished at this invitation, comes down out of his tree and is forgiven for everything he's ever done. And the things that Zacchaeus does after that, giving half his wealth away to the poor, restoring four times what he had stolen from people, this is not the cause of his salvation. It's the result of his salvation. It's the evidence of it. How do we know salvation has come to Zacchaeus? Because of the joy with which he does these things. It shows that his heart has been forever changed because Jesus had found him and called him by name and accepted him and forgiven him, and saved him. But Forget about Zacchaeus just for a minute. Let's talk about you. You know yourself better than you know Zacchaeus. Imagine that you heard the voice of Jesus Christ coming to you, and he called you pure and innocent. What would that do to you? Would you be like, yep, sounds right to me. That's me, pure and innocent. Or would it bring you to your knees because you know that that doesn't describe you at all? It should bring you to your knees. But as it does, it should also give you hope because Jesus doesn't lie. And if he calls you pure and innocent, then you're pure and innocent. But how could that be? How does that compute for Zacchaeus or for us? Well, how does God set people free from captivity to the devil and to sin and to death? Remember Genesis 3.15. There's going to be a human being who will accomplish this, and he's going to get himself hurt in the process. There's only been one truly innocent and pure human being who has ever lived, and it wasn't Zacchaeus, despite his name. It was the man talking to Zacchaeus from the base of the tree. And the way he set Zacchaeus free is the same way he can set you and me free by dying for us. As it says in 1 Peter three eighteen. for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Just as Zacchaeus came down from that tree to his salvation and was declared innocent, Jesus knew that in about a week, He, Jesus, had an appointment with another tree. He was going to go up that tree. In fact, he was going to be nailed to it. And onto his human body would be poured all the corruptions, Zacchaeus's and yours and mine, all the impurity, all the greed, all the lust, all the violence, all the rebellion, all the idolatry, and every other sin that humanity could ever commit. All of that would be nailed to Jesus along with all the rejection and shame that went with it. And in return, as a trade, Jesus would give us, all those who trust in him, the spotless record of a perfect human being so that God can justly look at you today and call you the pure and innocent one. Can you accept that? Has that happened to you? Has that happened? I don't mean, do you believe the right things about the Bible? I don't mean, do you go to church and and do Christian things? Has that happened to you? Have you heard the voice of Jesus calling your name, maybe not audibly, but in your heart? Has he been perhaps seeking you? Are you ready to come out of hiding and own up to your own helplessness and your captivity to sin and then receive forgiveness and new life from Jesus, your new Lord? And yes, you may have noticed that's what Zacchaeus called him, behold, Lord, because that's what he needs to be. Has that happened to you? Let's close our, our series this morning by maybe taking it a step further, because Jesus didn't just say, Zacchaeus, come down. He said, Zacchaeus, I have to come over to your house. He invited himself over. And so maybe this is kind of a bonus reason for the incarnation. Why did God become a man? Think about the last three weeks as we've been through this. Why did God become a man? So he could pay the price for sin himself as God? Yes. So he could seek us from our level and hunt us down in every nook and cranny? Yes. So he could qualify as the offspring of the woman to carry human sin in his own really human body and set us free? Yes. But it seems there was at least one more reason that God became a man, and that is that he wanted to be closer to us and for us to draw closer to him. And she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. With us. With us. You see, Christianity is not just a transaction by which God declares us innocent. It's not just a set of new beliefs or or developing some new worldview. It's not that. The call to become a Christian, yes, it's certainly a call to purity and to innocence. As we've said, God gives us that gift. It says in Ephesians that we are called to be saints. But it's also a call to relationship. Not just Zacchaeus, come down from there and receive my forgiveness. Jesus could have said that and kept walking. But he didn't. He said, Zacchaeus, come down from there and invite me in. Let's spend some time together. Jesus didn't call you just to forgive you or just to change your habits or your beliefs. He called you to himself. He called you to himself personally and he's still calling. He wants to be more than just a teacher, more than just a religious leader, more than just the answer to all your hard theological questions. He wants to be your companion, your confidant. He wants to be your counselor, your healer, your friend, your brother. He wants you to see him in all of his glory, and he wants to share with you everything he hears from his Father. He wants you to come to him when you're full of joy and excitement about life and things are going great. He wants you to come to him when you're heartbroken and you're devastated by loss. He wants wants you to come to him when you're ashamed of your past. Or when you're afraid for your future. He wants to be the first conversation you have in the morning and the last conversation before you go to sleep at night. And he wants your growing relationship with him to change your heart in the process to make it more like his perfect human heart so that you can grow even closer to him over time. What does it say in Revelation 3.20? pretty famous verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, hears me calling their name, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. This call to share a meal is a call to fellowship. It's even a call to intimacy, and it's a call, if you read Revelation 3, that was made to a church. It wasn't made to the heathen world. It was made to a a church. The church in Laodicea, a church that had a lot in common with Zacchaeus and has a lot in common with us. That call was made to a church full of wealthy, comfortable, lukewarm, compromised Christians who had let everything else pretty much crowd Jesus out of their lives. Stepping on my own toes, okay? It's a call to us. Jesus refuses to give up. He keeps knocking. He wants you. He wants to be with you. He wants to come inside, inside your house, inside every part of your life. He wants your time. He wants your presence. He wants your heart. He won't stand for anything less. Will you answer his call this Christmas? Let's pray.